If this is your first time here, we've been going through the book of Proverbs, uh, and this morning we'll be discussing Proverbs 3, uh, verses 1 through 12, so if you have your Bibles, keep them open there. Uh, Now, if you have been following along with us uh, each Sunday, you know that uh, the Proverbs, so far, uh, they've contained lectures from a father to a son. And the beginning of the book starts off with Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And following it are lectures from Solomon to his son, instructing him to keep his instructions. And in this we read words of wisdom that are not only uh, applicable to his son, but also to us Christians in the 21st century. Uh, Chapter 3, which is where we'll be at this morning, contains lecture 3 and also lecture 4. Uh, which are marked by their distinct themes, structural patterns, and their rhetorical devices. And you'll see how that is divided. Uh, But what is probably the easiest way to recognize when the father is entering into a new uh, address is when we read the father saying, my son, and you know that he's starting a new lecture or a new uh, uh, set of instructions to his son. And so you'll see this twice. Uh, One in in, uh, verse 1. And then, of course, and as you go on, verse 21. Our section for today will be the father's third lecture to his son, which is verses 1 through 12. That's the portion that we're going to be in today. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And as we go through it, you'll see that this lecture will advance what he said last week, which was uh, his second lecture. He's just, in a sense, reiterating or advancing it, uh, further developing it, if you will. Uh, He's going from the topic of accepting the Father's words, which was his emphasis last week, to now uh, advising or commanding, really, to his son uh, for him to guard the Father's words and not let them go. That's that's what he's doing in, in today's lecture. In essence, it is instruction to trust the Father's teaching and wisdom. If I can... Uh make up a thesis statement of what today's teaching is, is to trust the Father's teaching and wisdom. One of the things in the Christian life that often brings about major setbacks, I think, uh, in our walk is this subject of trust. If you were to consider what brings about quarrels among us, you'd see that the source of it all is the passions that are within us. And James 4 says, what causes conflicts and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the passions that are at war within you? You crave what you do not have. And it's easy to live moment by moment without acknowledging the Lord in all of our ways, which is actually one of the things that uh, the Father here in our main text uh, commands His Son to do, to acknowledge the Lord in all His ways. And from this... Uh, or from this way of living comes a life lived without the fear of the Lord. That's what happens when you don't do that. Living life wise in your own eyes, and one who despises correction even from God. And all this is essentially a trust issue. It's in a sense a practical atheism, if you will, if this is how you live. And therefore, we see in chapter 3 how the father of the son is addressing this matter, calling the son to heed his teaching. And hold fast to godly wisdom. And we as Christians should also heed to this as well, knowing that this was intended for us, not just a conversation between a a father and a son. This is intended for us to take and to see the wisdom that's there in that conversation. So let's go ahead and read the passage. Proverbs 3, 
verses 1 through 12. Can I have a volunteer to read it? My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forget, forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son, and whom he delights. Amen. Thank you, brother. So beginning with the first four verses... We see a focus on holding on to the teaching that is given from the Father to the Son. And again, I think it's important to mention that the teaching of the Father here in these verses are not God's laws directly, right? The Father is the one that's speaking to the Son. So it's not, a, it's not directly God's law. Uh, but just like chapter 2, it is, the God, it is the godly commands and principles that God gave through Moses, which is the Father in this passage. And so we ought to read the Father's instruction here as coming from a man who lived by God's laws and taught the wisdom of God in these Proverbs. And here he's instructing his son not to forsake his father's teaching, but let his heart uh, keep his father's commands. And so they're just, they're, it's, not, uh, it's not the Father saying, just do what I say and listen to what I have to tell you. This is a man who followed God's law, who lived after God's law, and therefore a man who is following God's law, he's instructing his son to do, to do the same, in essence. Now already we gain wisdom from Solomon's example as he expresses the importance of the father training up his sons and daughters, right? As a parent myself, we feel the weight of instructing our children in the way of the Lord, taking the time each day, morning through evening, instructing them on God's law. It could be through catechesis, shaping their worldview in accordance to what God has revealed in Scripture. Now what we read in verse 1 are straightforward commands to his son. And unlike many other Proverbs, which tend to have less of a demanding force to it, uh, verse 1 expresses its wisdom in the form of a command. Right? He says, Do not forsake my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. And so the Father is commanding that the Son keep His words. Keeping instruction in your heart involves, according to my understanding, it involves repetition. Right? How do you keep God's word in you? It, it involves repetition, memorization, and I think meditation as well. Right? You can't keep God's word in you if you just listen to sermons through, your, your, uh, through a podcast or through through some sort of audio device and just sort of let it go through you and it's hanging, at, hanging around in your head and then it might just come out once you forget about it or if you don't have any way to uh, apply these truths, it just it, it doesn't do anything in you. But it, it makes sense that keeping God's word in your heart involves repetition, memorization, 
and especially meditation. And this is all intended by the Father, I think, for the Son's well-being. And those of us who are parents to young children should, I think, likewise train our children to keep our instruction as well. Not because they're our instruction, but because our instruction to our children should be God's word. Now this brings us to a practical and I think theological question. Does it mean that the proper application of verse 1 would be that all sons and daughters ought to heed to their father's words and keep their commandments absolutely and in every case? Let's find out. Let's look at uh, Colossians 3.20. Can someone read that? Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Amen. So, it's true that children must obey their parents in everything, right? It pleases God, just that principle alone. And uh, the Proverbs seem to hold that the teaching and commandments from fathers... It seems, to, it seems to uphold the teaching and, fa- and the commandments from the fathers in a very high esteem. But the question that we need to consider is, should the instruction and teaching of a sinful or ungodly father be heeded with the same fervency? We see first and foremost that verse 1 in Proverbs 3 is only advancing what the father said in chapter 2. And here's an example. Proverbs 2, 1 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, and you see verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And so from verse 1, he's telling his son, if you receive my words, me as your father, and treasure up my commandments, then you fast forward to verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. What's the connection there? Why or how is the child to understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God from a man's instruction. Well, this is only possible if the man or the father's instruction to the son is godly instruction, instruction that is informed by the word of God. So again, notice that the father's instruction ties closely with godly instruction since, like we read, it leads to the fear and the knowledge of God. So by this, We know that the son is being commanded to not forget the teaching of his father, not because the father is the source of all truth and wisdom, but because his teachings are the teachings of Yahweh. And the commandments that the father wants his son to keep in his heart are really just the commandments of God. And by this, I think we need to conclude that verse 1 is not asking for sons to keep any sinful commandments that an ungodly father would give to his son. This proverb is is instruction from a father who is a follower of Yahweh to his son who is a disciple. And this is why a promise is attached to this commandment, which we read in the following verse, verse 2, where it says, For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And we read something similar in Exodus 20, verse 12. It says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. See, there's a promise attached to it. Now, this promise attached is not, is not your average promise. It's a proverb and therefore ought to be understood as a general truth. Right? In other words, we must not take that to mean that if you heed to your parents' instruction 
it will in, in every way alter your biology and make you younger and guarantee absolute certainty, with absolute certainty, that you'll gain two or three more years in your life, right? Just because you heeded to your parents' instruction doesn't mean that for some reason, some miracle happened in your biology that you've been added, you've been given two or three more years. That's not how that proverb was meant to be read. This is to be understood in a more natural, more broader, or in a general sense. And that's what a proverb is. A proverb is not uh, a truth that is applied absolutely and in every situation and scenario. Go ahead. Please. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Amen. No, that's a good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely uh, preserved. Yeah. Yeah. Praise God for that. Yeah. I mean, there's 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 wisdom in that, and you can see that there's immediate benefits to that as well. So, yeah. Amen. Yeah. So uh, again. Uh, I mean, a good example. Uh, and and uh, the, the Proverbs are like that, you know. They're, oftentimes you can see immediate results from, from, from that because it is the wisdom of God, you know. Um, and in a lot of cases, um, it, it has a very general, sort of a lighter application. But excellent, excellent point. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 3. Can someone read that? Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Mm -hmm. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Thank you. So notice the heart issue in that passage, right? The heart issue here is that it may go well with you, right? Uh, this implies that godly instruction, whether we hear it from our own parents or if we hear it from our pastors or even through the reading of Scripture, it always produces a right way of living. And this is why biblical wisdom is important. It's received and applied without any, when it's received and applied without any interruption of sin, it produces long life. That's what it does. 
God, it produces also godly productivity, and it produces blessing from God. Unfortunately, we don't experience that perfectly. Being that we're still in our sinful nature awaiting for a future glorification, these things just don't happen uh, all the time, especially with the interruption of sin. So no matter how much you walk in wisdom, folly is just around the corner, basically. We never walk in it perfectly. However, one day, when Christ comes, we'll receive new glorified bodies, and we will walk in perfect wisdom and in harmony with one another. In fact, verse 2 says, peace they will add to you. So peace is also a result of keeping God's commandments, which we will one day experience perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, the Father still points to His Son of peace that can, that can actually be experienced now if only he heeds to, to his instruction. And, and the same with us. When we heed to the instructions of our fathers, godly wisdom, and we heed to the word of God, uh, we, we do experience, in a sense, peace. Uh, obviously not in an ultimate sense. Let's go to verses 3 through 4. We read, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on a tablet on the tablet of your heart. Now what does he mean when he says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you? The, the Hebrew word for steadfast love used here is hesed. And the Hebrew word for faithfulness used here is emet. Now why is that important? Well, these two words are often found together in Scripture and other passages. I'll just briefly uh, say them. Uh, Exodus 34, 6. Psalm 86, 15. Psalm 108, 4. Psalm 115, 1. Psalm 117, 2. Uh, Psalm 138, 2. And God's very character is described by those terms. By those two terms. And you see this in Exodus 34. I'll just give you an example. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Look what it says. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see how they're always together? Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so again, we see those words there, slow to anger and abounding in hesed and emet. When used together, it's understood this way. It's understood as covenant love, right? That's another way of saying steadfast love. Covenant love and faithfulness. This covenant love and faithfulness are words that describe God's attitude towards his covenant people. This is to say that God stays involved and takes care of his people. When you think of steadfast love, think of covenant love. Think of a marriage, right? There's a covenant made. There's a pact between two parties there. And in that, when love is expressed in a covenant, it's a, it's a love that is involved. It's a love that takes care of the other party that's involved. Covenant language is described... Uh, when we think about a marital relationship, as I said. And as a husband, myself, I'm a husband, I am bound in covenant love and faithfulness to my wife. 
right? This means that I stay involved. Covenant love is a love that is built not on our emotions, right? That covenant faithfulness is not built on our emotions. One day I'm good, next day I'm bad. Uh, one day I'm in the mood, the next day I'm not in the mood. Our, my covenant love to my spouse is based on the covenant itself. In other words, the, the motivating power, the thing that empowers the love between the two parties is this covenant it is the covenant itself, is the pact itself. In other words, what keeps the marriage alive, let's just say, is not on the basis of how well I keep the so-called fire of passion between me and my wife, nor any performance, but rather the promise itself. So good marriage, good covenant love is, is dependent upon the, the covenant itself. As Christians, what holds our marriages is the faithfulness of the covenant itself. It is a binding between us that is held by the promises of the covenant. And likewise, God expresses his faithfulness through covenant love. So when we think of the character of God, is faithfulness, steadfast, covenant love. And, and, uh, and I think that, that gives us a good understanding. Now, going back to our main passage, we read that the son ought not to let covenant love and faithfulness forsake him. That's what it's telling him. That's what the father's telling him to do. Do not let covenant love and faithfulness forsake him. And so this is basically a call for the son to be characterized by this kind of, these kinds of uh, character traits. He ought to be characterized by a kind of love that's not driven by the passions of the flesh, but rather by covenant faithfulness. And this is the kind of love that our Lord Jesus Christ had for us, of course. He was faithful even unto death. We also see that the Father commanding him to bind these characteristics around his neck. Uh, he's, he's telling him to write them on the tablets of his heart. And this is to say that he should always keep these instructions before him and around him. And that his heart would be trained by these truths so much so that they become second nature to him. This is what the father's instructing the son to do. And this is familiar language. We see this in Deuteronomy 6, 5 when, when it talks about God's law, right? To bind him, uh, to keep him around your neck. Uh, put him on your doorpost. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. Can someone read that? love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Thank you. You see, for the son to have his father's instruction, instructions everywhere present, right? And always before him. And that's equivalent uh, to us today uh, uh, for us to have God's word around us and be before us. Uh, just the way that uh, this passage in Deuteronomy uh, instructed Israel to do, to do that. And we too... Uh, apply that to us as we also 
have the word of God everywhere. Um, we wake up to the word of God. We go down to the word of God. We, we, we post it on our doorposts. You know, wherever you can, the word of God is always before us. And so for the son to have his father's instructions everywhere present and always before him is equivalent to us today, having God's word always around us and before us. In other words, we too should rise in the morning to God's word. We should meditate in God's word throughout our day. We should meditate uh, on, on his, his character, his, his truths, the theology that is produced from his word. We should end our day in God's word. We should teach them diligently to our children. And for the Christian, there's nothing better than to wake up, right, in the morning with a cup of coffee and the word of God and allow that to inform your mind, right? Don't wake up in the morning and your mind is speaking to you as if your mind is uh, of top authority, right? And that's what happens. When you wake up, you're telling yourself all, all, you're telling yourselves all kinds of things. I wake up and I'm waking up like... I don't want to be alive today. <laughs> I don't want to go to work today. I don't want to be a father today. I don't want to be anything. That's what, that's what my flesh starts to tell me, right? It, you're always speaking to yourself, whether you think you are or you're not. What you need to do is say, no, I'm not the authority of me. The word of God is the authority of me. And so you, you want to begin your day with the word of God. Starting your day not with your own thoughts accusing you or informing you, but rather the thoughts of God. And while the world is feeding us with their distortions every minute and every hour, you can't even drive on a highway without the world informing you of things. There's billboards all over the place. My Twitter account is constantly popping with stuff. My Facebook is always telling me things. The world is constantly feeding you information. You have, to, you have to allow the, world, the word of God to push that out, to inform you, to tell you the truth about you and to tell you the truth about everything else. Um, so again, while the, word is, while the world is feeding us their distortions, we have to counter that with the renewal of our minds, with the word of God and, and, and our Heavenly Father's instruction. And you'll notice back in our main passage, verse 4, that the Father tells the Son that by walking this way, he will find favor and good success in the sight of God and in the sight of man. Now, this isn't a prosperity gospel. This is the wisdom from God, right? The Father here is implying that what you do in a vertical sense, it always affects what you do in a horizontal, right? Your walk with God always affects your walk with man. So if you don't walk in communion with God, your fellowship with man will also be affected and distorted or perverted. There's no such thing as a private relationship with God. That doesn't exist. A private relationship with God. Your personal relationship with God is always manifested in a public sphere, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so you can kind of hide yourself a little bit. But even that says something about your relationship with God. And so... There is no private relationship with God. It's always public, and it always has public manifestations. This is why it's important to guard your private life, guard your, your intimate time with the Lord, uh, because it will have effect in your public life. Anyway, moving along, there is a change, you'll notice in our main text, that happens as we go into verse 5. Uh, but the, for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to cover verses 5 through 8 as a whole. 
It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And so here, we get into the issue of trusting in the Lord. And this is the heart, I think, of the whole section, verses 1 through 12. You'll see that even the following verses, uh, it seems to touch on all these other issues, but it seems that the foundational issue from 1 to 12 is this uh, issue of trusting in God. And the Hebrew word here uh, used for trust is bata, bata, which carries the force of relying on some, someone else for security. Uh, our confidence is to be in the Lord and not in human understanding. And here the object of faith is what the Lord has said. That's it. That's the, uh, that's the thing that we have to have faith in. What God has said. What he's spoken. God's word is God. There's no separation. It's not God's opinion back then. God's word is God. And everything that produces from God, that's, uh, it, that's uh, directly connected to God and who he is when it comes to his will, is God himself. And this is why when the word of God is opened, we have to be reverent. Because when God's word is being spoken, we're receiving uh, the thoughts, the mind of God, the heart of God, the will of God. And so again, our confidence is to be in the Lord not in, our hum, uh, not in human understanding, and the object of faith is what God has said. What God has said should always be a question that we have in the front of our minds, everywhere, and in any, anything that we do. How many times have you been with people who are in need of direction, and not once do they consider what God has said? You know, there's people, uh, and I've been guilty of the same thing. There are times where we are... Uh, trying to figure out what the will of God is for our life, but we don't go to God to find out what the will of God is for our life. And that goes with anything that we do throughout our day, our busy lives. We have to consider what God has said. And this is a command. We see it there. The call is for a trust that is characterized by total commitment. Not just a little commitment, but total commitment. Notice the words there, with all your heart and in all your ways. This excludes nothing. There's nothing that doesn't need to be first uh, checked with God's word. God must be considered in every matter. In, any, in every matter. Uh, when it says, do not lean on your own understanding, the Hebrew word here is bina, which is to be understood, not just don't lean on your understanding in general. We know that we need our understanding to interact with understanding God's word. But what it's really saying is, do not lean on your natural or what is sin-corrupted flesh, uh, your natural uh, mind or thought process, which has been affected by sin. In other words, the lesson to be learned here is that our, na our nature has been affected by the, by the fall, and that means our minds have been affected by the fall as well. Uh, and this is not to say that we can't know anything. However, we must not assume that we are reliable at least in an ultimate sense. We're not reliable. We use our mind, it's a tool, but it was meant to submit to God's word and to check all things with God's word. 
we must, we, we must assume that we need to consult with God's word in every situation. And this is what the father means when he says to his son, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And there's peace, I think, that we experience when we do, when we, we're not tossed to and fro by all kinds of ideas that are fed to us. It's comforting to know that there is one way, one answer, one path, which is God's word that we can always go to, to sort of quiet the storm of our mind, right? Our, our souls are often divided because we have passions that are at war within us. And so it confuses, uh, it, it confuses us on how to walk, uh, on how to be, how to act, what to say. And it's comforting, I think, it's peaceful to know that we can always go to God's word and it'll tell us. And, and that, that settles it. We don't have to, you know, uh, wonder too much. Obviously, they're difficult passages, but um, the, the essential truths are plain in scripture. There's freedom in knowing that we can follow God and seek his will through his word uh, and he will make our path straight. Let's go to verses 7 and 8. It tells us not to be wise in our own eyes, but rather fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Uh, this, command, this command reminds me of what was going on with Israel in the book of Judges. Uh, oftentimes, a judge would pass away, leaving Israel with no direction, and what resulted from this was that they were left to be the judge of themselves. And what happens when you're your own judge? What happens when you're your own judge? Nothing good happens when you're your own judge. Many people today prefer not to go to church, for example, or to be under any church membership because they don't want to be under any form of accountability. They want to be their own judge. Many today profess to be Christians, but they don't want church. And again, the response is always the same. You don't get to discern whether you're a Christian. You don't get to discern that, right? If someone who doesn't have any connections to church decides that today I think I'm going to convert to Christianity, they don't get, they don't get to discern that on their own. The church has to discern that. And the church discerns through the ministry of the preached word and the forms of church discipline that our Lord has, has, has given to us on, on whether a person is genuinely uh, a follower of Christ. Now, this is not to say that you can't be converted apart from being a member of a church. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that a Christian can't survive, um, or a person who calls himself a Christian won't survive uh, as a Christian if they think that this is something that they can do on their own apart from the gifts that God has given the church, right? That's why a pastor is necessary in your life to tell you, hey, I don't think you're a Christian. I know you think so, but someone outside of you has to tell you that. Uh, and, and the church is there for that. The gifts are given to the church. But again, people do not want a king. People don't want a judge. They'd rather be their own king. And we read uh, with Judges 17, 6, uh, in, those, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see another verse, the same thing. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Now, because we're sinners by nature, we will always default in sinning and following what we think is right instead of what God thinks is right. With that said, we see that just as the book of Judges pointed to our need for a perfect king, we too need a perfect king, excuse me, a perfect king, namely Jesus Christ, to rule over us, to help us to denounce our own ways and to follow God's ways wholeheartedly. Now, verse 8 highlights the reward of walking in righteousness. It says, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, even though it's true that walking upright has positive effects on your outer self, that's not the point here. Uh, I agree with A.R. Johnson's book, uh, The Vitality of the Individual and the Thought of Ancient Israel. Uh, In that book, he mentions how Scripture often uses the physical body or illustrations uh, about the physical body to describe inner spiritual or even psychological feelings. And we see this a lot in the book of Job and also in Psalms. Uh, In ancient Israel, they didn't divorce soul and body as much as I think we do today in modern thought. Soul and body constituted the whole person. And therefore, when we read words like healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones, we have to see that as spiritual as well. And the lesson to be learned here is that fearing the Lord and turning away from evil is is what's good for the whole man, for for body and soul. All right, for the sake of time, uh, let's look at verses 9 and 10. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will burst with wine. And so the Father then moves from speaking on receiving general blessings, both outer and inner, to talking about receiving more specific things that we see there in verse 10. But I think it's important not to read that as a description of a kind of relationship with God that is merely transactional. Right? Where you give God and God gives back to you. Sort of like a vending machine where you put something in the machine and then you get something out. His point here, I think, is different. His point here is that when we, when we honor God with the right use of material things, it expresses gratitude for his favor and recognizes that he controls the, na- the natural order of things and, and the processes of that. And therefore, We have this command in verse 9 telling us to honor the Lord with your wealth. And this is the biblical view, uh, or this is the biblical view, I think, of all material possessions. Scripture demands that we use our possessions for the glory of God, that we honor Him with all of it, every single thing that we have. This means everything from our vehicles to our homes to our food, our money. Those who keep possessions without considering how they may be used to honor God are forgetting that God provided to them. He gave them that. It's God who gives. And what do we have that was not given to us? We see this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? One of the ways that you boast is to act like you gained it, like you were the one that obtained these goods. 
as if God was not at all involved in that. So this also reminds us that the same God who has given all to you can easily take it away. Easily. Therefore, the Proverbs ought to remind us that God's main purpose in providing any material blessing is for the purpose of his own glory. Honoring God with our possessions, I think, is, is accomplished by trusting God, as you see in verse 5. Uh, you see the Macedonian, you remember the Macedonian churches who were able to give generously to the Jerusalem church. They were poor, and they gave from what they had. And, and I think, actually, if we look at that passage, they were giving beyond their ability. How do you give beyond your ability? You have to trust in God. You have to be more concerned with the glory of God than uh, having possessions. And honoring God with our possessions, uh, you'll see, in a sense, God blessing you with more possessions, not for the sake of just being rewarded, good job, now here's your prize. God will bless those who uses who, who use their possessions to give to others, of course God will be glad to give you more possessions so that you continue that work of ministry. And that's the point. The, the reason why God gives you is that you give it away. He gives you all these things so you give it away, uh, that you do not be a keeper of possessions, a person who has a storage in the back who's just stacking possessions and possessions, but a person who gives freely, always concerned with the things of God. Let's go to verse 10. We see from verse 10 that when we honor the Lord with our possessions, we're given more from the Lord for the sake of continuing our generosity and displaying His glory uh, in our right use of it. Uh, By the way, uh, the three basic products of ancient Israel farmers were grain, wine, and oil. And so barns full of grain, as it says there, vats full of wine, symbolized prosperity on all levels. And although we aren't always promised material riches in this temporal earthly time, the Proverbs gives us another general truth, that when you honor God with your material uh, material possessions, he's pleased to continue to provide for you. Looking at uh, the last two verses, verses 11 through 12, you'll notice that the Father says again, Uh, the words, my son. The repetition of the words, my son, signals the end of this instructional lecture. He says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. I think this is great wisdom here. Those who are wise want to correct their mistaken thinking or their mistaken behavior, right? Only a fool would want to remain living in error. And as painful as truth can be, especially if truth reveals sin in our lives, we must see correction as a blessing. When someone corrects you, you have to receive that as a blessing. I know it's hard. I don't always like to be corrected. My pride goes up immediately. When someone starts telling me, you know, what I'm doing wrong, your pride, the wall goes up. But those who are wise receive correction. Only a fool would want to remain in error. And, as, and this, this is a call for you to listen more than talk and talk less, I think. Um, and this is important if you want to continue to walk in truth. 
Those who are wise love correction. We see this in Proverbs uh, 3, 27 through 29. Uh, if you can write it down, I won't read through it. We're just kind of short on time. But consider Proverbs 9, 7 through 12. And I think it gives us wisdom on uh, receiving correction. Now looking back at our text, we see that God often corrects us. And he does so out of love. When God corrects you, you need to be thankful that God loves you enough to correct you. If, if, you, were, if you were not of God, he would let you go. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the ways that God punishes a nation or a city or a group of people or even an individual, oftentimes it's not, oh, you know, you got hit by a car. Oh, oh you know, a family member got hurt. And so this is trials in your life. Sometimes God doesn't do that. Sometimes the way that God punishes you is that he lets you do what you want. Because by letting you do what you want, you are being let go, in a sense, to your own destruction. But when God corrects you, that means he's preserving you. He's keeping you. And this is why the father here is telling the son not to despise God's correction. If anything, God's correction is the best thing that could ever happen to someone. Uh, and, and it's because God has their best interest, right, in mind. And the father goes on to say that he should not be weary of that reproof either. And this, is to say, this is to say that although God's correction may be painful, we ought to endure since it's working for our good. Another verse I think you should write down. Not that one. Not that one. Hebrews 12, 3. Uh, 3 through 11. Let's write that down and, and uh, look through that. Consider that, and I think it informs this concept very well. And from that, you'll see that discipline is the expression of God's love for his children. And therefore, we ought to be thankful to be counted worthy of, of God's correction. And since even the wisest of God's children are subject to sin, there's a necessity of God's fatherly discipline to increase wisdom. We need it for us to grow in wisdom. And so correction should never be resisted. It should be received and endured. In conclusion, we see that all of this is based on one important key lesson, trusting in God. We must trust in God enough not to lean on our own understanding, but rather to acknowledge Him in all our ways and not to be wise in our own eyes, uh, fear the Lord and turn from evil, and honor Him with our material possessions, knowing that what we have was given to us from Him. And finally, it requires trusting in God in order for us to be open to all his discipline and his correction, knowing that it's serving us for our good. And so I pray that God would cause us all to increase in trust towards him and that our hearts would increase in faith so that we would walk in complete trust and obedience to the Lord. And may his spirit work in our hearts to that end. Amen. Uh, that concludes uh, today's passage. Ne next week, we'll finish up chapter 3. Okay. Um, let me go ahead and pray and close this out. Our Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us through these verses. You call us to trust you and help our weak and sinful hearts. Give us a faith that causes us to walk confidently in the way which you've called us to walk in. Help us to acknowledge you in all we do, and may your spirit do this work in our hearts, even now. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.